Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, you get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash late night or not it's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode. Will we do an unprecedented early introduction? Will we be professionals? Sure. Let's try to be professional for once in our fucking podcast <laughs> careers here. Okay. You prepared me to wait for half an hour and then you introduced <laughs> me five seconds in. We're going to throw you in. Well, I want to talk about your work, so. Yes, everybody, this is Leighton Night with Brian Wecht. Across from me here, we have Leighton Gray. That's me. The voice that you just heard was Brian. And mystery Hi. guest... Would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Samantha Allen. I'm an author, journalist, podcaster, etc. Wonderful. Well, we are very glad to have you. And I want to kick this off also by saying maybe the best emailer I have ever experienced. Your emails are so nice. I got one email from you and I was like, it's so warm. It was, it was, I was just like radiating good vibes from your emails. I don't know if you've ever gotten this compliment before. You are an amazing emailer. I was really, I was just like, wow, she rules. She's like killing it right away. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> writing a book is like 90% emailing and like 10% actually writing. So I've really honed those skills. I don't know if I've honed book writing, but I've gotten really good at email the last few years. Well, I thought your book was great too. So many people are so bad at email. So when you find somebody who is good at email and <laughs> replies on time and is nice, it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Just getting a message from someone where you're like, okay, I think some thought went into this message. It's a nice feeling for sure. I was a faculty, a professor long enough that I got so many emails from students, which were just like, what is homework? You're like, come on, just like <laughs> try to write a sentence here. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Real Queer America, I didn't finish it yet, but it's really lovely. Your writing is beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. And we have a little connection through Real Queer America, too, mm -hmm. via Ninja Sex Party. <laughs> yeah, which is how I found out about you and your book. So it was on Twitter, and I think you were replying to someone else's tweet about it. Is that right? Yeah. Someone mentioned, like, happy to see NSP in there. Was that it? Uh-huh. Yeah, because Real Queer America, it's this travelogue. I went across the country meeting and interviewing LGBTQ folks. And in Utah, I became friends with this uh, LGBTQ young person named Jeannie. And Jeannie was a huge fan of Ninja Sex Party, which I mentioned in the book. And then someone on Twitter pointed out that the mention landed on page 69, which was <laughs> semi-intentional. Nice. So... <laughs> Yeah. That's how it happened. So I saw the tweet because it showed up the mentions and I was like, the book sounds amazing. So I was in a local bookstore and picked it up there. It was on the shelves. Like it was right there. 
And I grabbed it and I loved it. I read it in like two or three days. I just thought it was fantastic. And also the kind of thing where I was like, how has this story not been told before? You know what I mean? Like, it seemed like such a, and I say this as a compliment, like such a clear idea for LGBTQ stories from red states. I was surprised that this is the first time I I had heard of it, but it was wonderful. I mean, for me, like much of my queer adult life has been spent in red states. I met my wife in Indiana. I came out as trans while I was living in Georgia. I lived in Florida for three years. So for me, I had had all of these experiences, but working in national media, it still kind of felt like folks were playing catch up a little bit and understanding the shape of the LGBTQ community in America. And so that to me seemed like the opportunity to say, hey, you know, during this time when a lot of people are going on, you know, journalistic journeys into quote unquote Trump country to like understand how the 2016 election happened, let me go out and show you how like queer these states are instead. And that's kind of like how it all came together. And there's been a lot of books since Real Queer America, like also in that space. And I think we're still playing catch up a little bit and catching Mm -hmm. the national media up to like the reality of where queer people live. But I'm pleased to see it happening like more and more. Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people who are queer and who might be in red states or other places, it's the feeling of like being around queer people in person for the first time is such a like powerful experience of like, oh, okay, you all get it. We're all in this place together. And I feel like a lot of people now might have that only exposure through the internet, which is a big very important thing, but it also is so fraught because there is really no replacing that like in-person connection as much as I wish that it could or could be more available like that. Especially on Twitter, it can be difficult to feel that community sometimes. Yeah, the pandemic has been really hard in that respect. Like, you know, I'm 34, so like the internet was still really formative to me, but then like I was able to kind of find a lot of in-person community. And I guess I am a little worried for the kids, especially kids coming of age in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that can be really powerful, but I still think there's like no substitute for that feeling of camaraderie of sharing safe indoor air with somebody. Yeah. Yeah, Which really comes across in your book. I mean, your your description, not just of the people, but of the spaces that everybody is inhabiting and these wonderful communities that people have built. Like that was palpable in your description of them. Yeah. You know, a lot of LGBTQ businesses have like fallen on hard times during the pandemic because you're already serving like, you know, a relatively small market and then pandemic on top of that. But Hopefully folks will be able to come out of it. I've been kind of keeping tabs on a lot of the businesses mentioned in the book to be sure they're doing okay. Oh, great. Yeah. That's good. And I think in a lot of those places where the queer communities are so small, there is a really beautiful thing about like everyone knowing each other and also very cute because it's like, I've dated this person and this person's (laughs) ex is somebody who I'm seeing. And like, (laughs) it's really precious where it's just like there is this two degrees of separation to everything in these smaller queer communities. Yeah, yeah. Even in the big cities, sometimes you end up dating the ex of someone, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I have a friend who is poly and queer in LA. And, you know, I met her when I was in Savannah. And like in both places, she's like, this is just like Savannah. (laughs) Like everyone knows each other. (laughs) That feeling of like 
the world feeling small and personal in that way when you like look at it on the internet, which is just so like deprived of context. You're 34. What were your first experiences with the internet like, or like reaching out to other queer people online even? It was like web forums, you know, I didn't really even understand like what being trans meant fully until like college and grad school. So a lot of it is just like, hey, I feel like there's something going on with me. Is this going on with you too? And other people are like, yes. And but we're kind of like reaching for vocabulary for it. Uh I mean, this speaks to me to the importance of like that in-person community, it didn't really like crystallize to me until I was in grad school and like met other trans people face to face. And I was like, oh, shoot, you can do this. Like, (laughs) this isn't just something I've read about. Like you can actually take hormones, you can see a therapist, you can like actually change your life in this way. And once I saw that, that did more for me than, you know, five years of posting on random internet forums. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. There is like a big divide there. But at the same time, I know like a lot of my post formative experiences of being like, hmm, I'm attracted to women came out of like being on Tumblr and also engaging in fandom spaces and all of that. And I know so many people who are that same way. And like my first experience is like feeling safe in the semi-anonymity of making online friends and both being like, yeah, in real life, I am struggling with this. And like that camaraderie, like it's hard to replace, but it feels very distinctly different on the internet versus in real life. Like I remember when the concept of internet friends was very like dangerous seeming, I guess, especially as a teen where your parents are like, never (laughs) talk to strangers on the internet. It's like, I stay up until (laughs) 4am with strangers on the internet who are all great. (laughs) At that age, it's like your portal into other lives, you know? It's like often one of your only ways of like hearing about experiences that don't align with your narrow like socioeconomic slice of wherever you're situated. I loved the anonymity of the early internet. I was all over AOL chat rooms and (laughs) all that kind of stuff, just talking to people. Were you a Tumblr person also? Not so much Tumblr, although, you know, I worry some about like, as platforms engage in more rigorous content moderation, a lot of that is good and is targeting stuff that needs to get off those platforms. But what we find is that like a lot of LGBTQ content gets swept up in that. And I sort of worry by that token, like waiting that someone coming of age now who's like having these feelings wouldn't be able to find as much support or understanding on a place like Tumblr as they would have like when you were a Tumblr power user. (laughs) (laughs) Tumblr power user is such a grim face. But but that was me. (laughs) I mean, with the like not safe for work crackdown on Tumblr, especially where like there is sort of the growing like sanitization of the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, like the porn and like kink and like talk of sex positivity on Tumblr, which I feel like was a really big hallmark of my time a decade ago. I have really no idea what the state of the website is now. I guess a lot of people have migrated to Twitter, which is its own flavor of cesspool. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, that is an out of the frying pan and into the fire (laughs) scenario for sure. And it's the complete opposite of the safety of the anonymity of feeling like you can be honest with people. Now it feels like for the love of God, don't be open and honest because Twitter is so connected with your real name and like it's all together. It's all out there. There isn't like that mask of this is a safe place for me or like this is a window. Now the internet is shitty cling wrap over everything. And it's not like this is a place that I can go. It's just please remove me from (laughs) this horrible nonstop barrage of information. Well, I also get the sense that on Tumblr, communities were pretty, I mean, not totally, obviously, but relatively closed off. You could get in, but things kind of just circulated in various communities. Uh, Whereas on Twitter, everybody sees everything. Obviously, there are communities, but you get so many outsiders looking at your shit who have no idea what's going on and feel entitled to comment on it. That is one of the strengths of it, that you can see anything you want. But also, it invites a lot of bullshit, to put it plainly, from people who don't know what they're talking about and are confused by basically everything. In the words of Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail, Twitter is a goddamn piazza, you know? It's uh, (laughs) too much talking. Yeah. You've Got Mail. I have not thought about that movie in a long time. It's a classic. But again, we wouldn't be here without Twitter probably today. So I can't write it off entirely. But yeah, there's some dire stuff happening on there for sure. We got our allocated bitch about Twitter once an episode for an extended (laughs) period of time. (laughs) Yeah. So inescapable. But tell us, please, about the horror comedy novel that you're writing, because I'm extremely interested in this, and it sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. And congratulations on it, too, of course. So this is your first fiction novel, is that right? Yeah. So Real Queer America was my first, you know, hardcover full release, like nonfiction book. And my motto is always be debuting, you know? (laughs) So first I'll do a fiction novel and then a children's book and then a graphic novel or I don't know. But it's good to always keep the momentum of the debut Mm because after you debut, publishing no longer cares about you. (laughs) You already wrote one book. Why would you need to write another? No, but Patricia Wants to Cuddle is the name of the novel. It will be out about a year from now. So I'm sorry you have to wait so long for it, but I'm so psyched about it. It is a horror comedy set on an island where a reality dating TV show is being filmed and a mysterious creature may have other designs on the remaining contestants, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. So it's kind of like a, a satirical slasher set against the backdrop of reality TV. That sounds amazing. So I'm assuming that you have a connection to reality TV. Like, (laughs) you enjoy the old reality dating TV shows? I do. I like F-Boy Island currently. (laughs) That's a show? (laughs) Yeah. It's on HBO Max. It's very, like, self-aware reality TV. We're entering, like, this weird deconstructionist phase of reality TV, I feel like, where they're just breaking down all the tropes. I'm a huge fan of the Bachelor franchise, of course, and a few others. The Circle on Netflix, although that's kind of dating adjacent. Mm -hmm. Leighton, is that the one, the circle that Anthony Carboni was talking about? That's the one where people are anonymous and you can only, you know, communicate through texts or something. Is that right? 
Yeah, they're all like catfishing each other. Like half right. the people are playing as themselves <laughs> and half the people are playing as like a friend of theirs whose photos they were given permission to hijack. Amazing. Whoa. The HBO one, I heard people talking about it, but I thought it was a joke. Like I didn't think it was a real show. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm not that shocked, but I'm surprised to find out it is. I thought it was like a running joke or something. Is it good? So many TV shows these days would have been like 30 Rock cutaway gags yes. like 10 years ago. Like yeah. Milf Island, yes. Yeah. I think we're honestly two years away from Milf Island like actually <laughs> happening. I would watch Milf Island. On NBC. Yeah. It would be a huge moneymaker for NBC. They would cancel three sitcoms to make room for it in the fashion. Yes, absolutely. You get Titus Burgess to host it, right? and put it on NBC with a bunch of 30 Rock people like showing up occasionally, it would be incredible. Yeah. Titus Burgess is going to host a Bachelor in Paradise this summer. <gasps> is he really? Whoa. They have like a few guest hosts. I think David Spade, Titus Burgess, <laughs> a few other people. It's really going off the rails in the best <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a single episode of The Bachelor or know anything about it other than that it is a show that has been on a long time. My wife and I describe it as like, for us, it's the equivalent of what a drag show would be for straight people. <laughs> it's like heterosexuality performed to like an almost comic extent. Yes. And so I kind of love it for that reason to see straight people performing straightness to like <laughs> the umpteenth degree, you know, uh, see like this bevy of influencers who would never be seen in public unless their hair was like Dyson air wrapped to perfection, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think Patricia, my book was kind of born out of watching some of these shows and thinking about themes of gender and queerness against that context. Some of my favorite things are horror comedies. Do you have any particular influences with that genre? specifically? I think it's called Behind the Mask. The Rise of Leslie Vernon, yeah. Yes, I really like that one. I like anything that takes the slasher format and does a spin on it. I'm a huge fan of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Mm -hmm. Ditto Freaky, I really enjoyed. I've heard that was really good and I've been meaning to see it, but I haven't watched it yet. It is a lot of fun. I think it's just like such a generative space, the ability to like blur these genre lines and like, why not have massive amounts of gore coexist alongside like stuff that makes you laugh? Sure. I just really enjoyed playing with that in the book of, you know, having like yeah. dismemberments happening at the same time as like jokes about reality dating TV. Yeah. There are such structural similarities from horror to comedy where it is like building tension, setup, repetition, punchline, you know, jump scare versus like a actual punchline, laugh line. So I feel like a lot of people do not get the fusion right. Like it's so hard to stick that yes. tone in a way that's like fun and interesting. But the ones that do hit, hit really well. Yeah. A formative movie from my youth was Evil Dead 2, which... I still love to this day as an example of slapstick comedy more than horror. You know, I think they 
pretty much nail the confluence there. Yeah, the Shaun of the Dead, another great one. Yeah, for sure. There was another one, I think it was called Final Girls or Final Girl. Oh, yeah. And it was like the main character's mom was like a, a scream queen and she passed away in a car accident. And then she ends up in one of her mom's movies and has to like oh, wow. navigate, um, you know, the killer that her mom faced in that movie or something like that. That's so cute. I think they can also be surprisingly moving, you know? That one yes. was like genuinely tear-jerking at the end. And I just love like blending all of those things together, you know, horror, comedy, little sprinkle of poignancy and yeah. letting it all come to a simmer. Yeah. Have you seen All Cheerleaders Die? All Cheerleaders Must Die. Yeah. I think. Yes. I really enjoyed that one. It's cute. It's like not what I was expecting. I didn't expect it to be like a sweet, like <laughs> lesbian sort of plot of Infinity War. Like let's get the stones to <laughs> revive everybody. <laughs> it's so silly and cute. Is that a movie? Yeah. It's a lot of fun too. And I very queer. And I love when horror just doubles down on being openly and brazenly queer instead of keeping it at the level of subtext, which is where it exists in a lot of kind mm-hmm. of mainstream stuff. Yeah. A couple of episodes ago, we had my friend who's a queer game developer, but we were talking about Bloodborne and sort of the connection between a subset of queer people getting really, really, really into Bloodborne and like how much of most of the people that I know, including myself, who are like the most into body horror and all that kind of stuff, like there is that big intersection with queerness of like not feeling at home in your body or feeling the sense of the other. I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah, I mean, I think a horror is sort of, I don't know, it's inherently queer. I think like existing in the world as an openly queer person can be a horrific experience. And I think some people think that, oh, that means you would just want to take comfort in escapist entertainment or stuff that's reassuring or pastoral or nice. And that can be nice sometimes. But I think for me, what I found most cathartic or most healing is kind of facing some of those like fears head on and just like doubling down on them as a way of like defanging it almost. Uh You get that sense of mastery of like, I'm watching somebody else doing this extremely stressful thing and it's scary and I'm coming out of it. And it's like, well, at least that's not happening to me. (laughs) You get to externalize like trauma in this really, I think, refreshing way. Yes. is So much of horror is like about trauma. Like there are the, you know, prongs of like horror and mental illness and queerness, like kind of all coming together into this big thing where it's like anxiety, PTSD, trauma, like all this stuff. It is really interesting salve horror. You can see my fucking ghost face blanket and also <laughs> ghost face mask over here. Very steeped in it. It's very important to me. I've got a Jason mug somewhere around here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> a lot of people I feel like who grow up to be into horror have like an early formative experience, like watching horror movies. Do you have any of those, like something that really scared you really young or did you get into it later? Oh gosh. So I grew up in a Mormon household and we couldn't uh-huh. watch rated R movies. So I was restricted in like what I could get my hands on as a kid. So a lot of that stuff looking back now feels pretty tame. Like what lies beneath little Harrison Ford. Uh, I forget who the actress is in that. Oh, it's Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Yes. 
I really enjoyed that. But, you know, as an adult, I've gotten to go back. But if I had to point to one that I would say is really formative, it would be, you know, I got away to college in 2005 and then I could buy whatever DVDs I wanted to. And a couple years later, this great movie called The Descent came out. Mm-hmm. And The Descent, I think, unlocked the entire genre for me. The Descent is so fucking good. It's one of it's my all-time favorites. fucking fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I went into it like before I was super into horror and I was like, oh, the first 20 minutes of a horror movie, you just kind of fuck around. You don't have to worry about anything fucked up happening. And like literally five minutes into that movie, it goes off the rails. Yeah. I don't want to spoil for anybody because the churn in that movie is like a big part of why it's great. But like as a kind of claustrophobic person, that is the most claustrophobic movie that I've ever seen. (laughs) It's like caving. Why does anybody do this? This is so stressful. It's always interesting to me also how... Maybe you both are a little too young for this because I think it's less true now than when I was growing up in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. But a lot of children's entertainment is fucking terrifying. And (laughs) there are movies that are essentially horror movies if you, you know, think about them at all. Uh, The most notorious example is probably Return to Oz, which is a sequel that Disney made to The Wizard of Oz, which was probably in the mid 80s. And it is abjectly terrifying. It is a children's movie where I'm still kind of traumatized from it to this day. There's all sorts of horrible stuff that happens in kids' movies. And I think there's a reasonable interpretation of a lot of kids' stuff from when I was growing up as, oh, this is kind of a horror film. You know what I was watching a few months ago? It had Tom Cruise in it and Tim Curry was like playing the devil. Oh, legend. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. That's terrifying. (laughs) For those of you who don't know what Tim Curry as the devil looks like in legend, look it up because it's supposed to be this like very mythical, fantastical kind of thing. And he has the biggest horns you can possibly imagine. I mean, that scared the crap out of me as a kid. And I was not particularly young when that came out. Yeah. I was terrified, terrified by legend. There's this whole stretch of the eighties of just like puppets in the forest and like randomly popping out and scaring the protagonist. (laughs) Uh Labyrinth, another great example of very scary stuff happening and is just a kid's. I mean, I love Labyrinth, you know, fuck, it's got Bowie in it. I don't watch anything with Bowie in it, but oh my God, a lot of that Henson stuff is, is still traumatic. Anytime there's a full size Muppet, which is a human in a, like fully in a Muppet costume, (laughs) And that Muppet eats somebody, I, I I still can't deal with it. I still hate it. It's the uncanny valley of it all, I guess. Like that thing is moving. It should not be moving like that. Yeah. I don't know anyone that's seen Legend in the last 20 years. I'm impressed that you actually managed to find it. I didn't even know that was still out there. We covered it, oddly enough, on this little like amateur rom-com podcast that I do where we watch... Mm-hmm movies with love triangles and make a case for the character that doesn't get chosen. So uh-huh. we had to make a case for Tim Curry's uh, Dark Lord in, in that episode. What's the podcast called? It's called You Should See the Other Guy. I think there's only one other podcast called that, and it's a UFC podcast or like an MMA <laughs> podcast. So they took the idiom in a very different direction. I could see the crossover there. Like, what's the WWE love triangle that we're not seeing? That's a meeting of the minds. Yeah, that's a great idea for a podcast. What other like movie love triangles have you all hit on that pod? 
Oh gosh, we've been doing it for about a year. <laughs> we try to stick to rom-coms, but then we end up straying into weird territory like we did Justice League for some reason. Uh-huh. But I would say some of the classics of like a clear-cut case of she should have chosen the other guy would be Pretty in Pink yeah. comes to mind. Ducky yep. is sort of like the iconic other guy. Yep. If you ever listen to Bullseye on NPR, they just interviewed Andrew McCarthy. I guess they reshot the end of Pretty in Pink because everybody yes. was so upset with it, right? He talks a lot about being that character and what <laughs> people reacted to him. We found that so galling that they had reshot it. The message of the movie seemed to be like, no, don't ever date outside your class. Yes. <laughs> They're like, the preppy rich kid is who you should be with instead of like the one you have a genuine relationship with. I felt the same thing about the ending of Shrek. The lesson was like, as long as that person is exactly like you, then that's okay. But otherwise, don't do it. Like, come on. We did Shrek 2. We didn't do Shrek 1 for some reason. I'm trying to remember why. Yeah, what happens in Shrek 2? Doesn't Shrek become like handsome man Shrek? Yes, he becomes human Shrek. The winner of the current season of The Bachelorette famously looks like human Shrek. Uh, everyone compares him to human track <laughs> on social media. Uh, how many Shrek movies? Uh, there are like five. I believe five has yet to come out. I think that's right. Okay. They did a Puss in Boots spinoff as well that I right. think mm -hmm. I blocked from my memory. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite Shrek fact is that they had like the animation all done or something. And then Mike Myers said, I want to do it in a Scottish accent. And <laughs> It cost like a gazillion dollars to redo it, but they did it. Oh my God. That's wild. Was he just doing like a normal guy voice? Yes. There's like DVD deleted pre-animation sketches with like temporary voiceover over it. And it's just Mike Myers talking in like a, his normal Canadian like huh. voice. I'm not sure I've ever actually heard him talk <laughs> in his normal voice. He's just been locked in Shrek accent for <laughs> 20 years. Yeah, it's when they warn you, like, oh, don't keep making that face. It's going to get stuck that way. But turns out that was the ultimate fate of Mike Myers. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Is that Austin Powers bar in Glendale still open? Wait, what? There's an Austin Powers bar? No. Yeah, there is. <laughs> it's an Austin Powers themed bar? Yes, I was going to go with Matt and Ryan like a few years ago. Oh, wait, hold on. What's the name of it? What would be my name of an Austin Powers theme bar? Permanently closed. Fuck. <laughs> like, the first thing that occurs to me is Yeah Baby. I would absolutely go to a bar called Yeah Baby. <laughs> yeah. I'm debuting my new character, the person who does a perfect Austin Powers impression, except for the accent and mannerisms. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it right now. Yeah, baby. Gosh, I'm sad they closed. I wonder, be some interesting stuff at that auction, though, if you were a yes. restaurant industry wholesaler. That would be amazing, <laughs> yeah. Okay, what was the name of it? The Electric Pussycat. Okay, that makes sense, sure. That was the name of yeah. the club in London, right, that he hung out at in Austin Powers 2, is that right? You're really pushing me on my Austin Powers knowledge despite having loved those movies so much as a child. Yeah. Not understanding a single one of the jokes, but just being like, ooh, fun costumes, funny voices. I just rewatched So I Married an Axe Murderer. Have you two seen that? 
semi-recently. No. I haven't, but I've been trying to find it. It's weird and very, very funny. It is very much of its time. It's maybe the most 90s thing I could possibly imagine from the (laughs) costumes and it's in San Francisco, but there's no tech. So San Francisco kind of feels like a foreign country compared to what it is right now. They have all these great cameos. Stephen Wright is in it, Alan Arkin. There's some fun stuff in there. It's worth seeing. It also has just an incredible poster. Yes. I always come back to that one on Letterboxd. Just gorgeous. Love it. It'd make a good double feature with The Burbs, maybe. Oh, I love The Burbs. Nice. Yeah. You both seen that, The Burbs? I've seen like the first half of it on TV. I never finished it. I feel like it's a TV exposure thing (laughs) for me, too. Definitely. It's been so long since I've seen it. But I would recommend seeking it out. It's a very odd little film. I think it's Joe Dante. But yeah, an interestingly weird movie. Yeah, that is Joe Dante. Corey Feldman. Wow. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher? Half the show is just me Googling things. Yeah, (laughs) she's in it, supposedly. Corey Feldman was in one of the Jasons, one of the Friday the 13th. Very young Corey Feldman, if I'm remembering right. Oh, I had no idea. That would make sense, yeah. I think Goonies was his breakout. Goonies, another very influential movie to me as a kid. I feel like that was one of the first Corey Feldmans I saw. His agent probably booked him the Friday the 13th at the same time and was like, don't worry, no one will ever see. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who got their starts in like weird little horror movies. Like Renee Zellweger's first movie was Texas Chainsaw The Next Generation, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite performance from her because I fucking love that movie. Nobody (laughs) ever talks about that ridiculous movie. Is that the McConaughey one? It is the McConaughey one. It's so good. I've only seen like one and two of the original. It's not the reboot. It is sort of in the lineage of one and two. It's tonally way more similar to two than it is to one. I have a Texas Chainsaw Massacre tattoo of Sally getting away at the end, but I have not seen any of the reboots because I feel like they will make me angry. I've only seen up to Next Generation. That's one of my, like, favorite images in, like, cinema is her on the back of that truck, like, covered in blood, laughing maniacally. She's exhilarated to be free, but her brain is just going to be forever fucked by, like, what happened. It's so perfect. I love it. I love this tattoo so much. I have never had a single person in public, like, clock it for what it is, and I'm waiting (laughs) for that day so I can find the fellow kindred spirit. Did you draw it yourself? No, I didn't. It was by um, Taddy Compton, who's a very good stick and poke, like big on Instagram artist. But she was like, God bless her. I knew she was weirded out uh, (laughs) by this design. Her original design, like she looked upset. And I was like, no, but like the whole point of it is she's like laughing and screaming and covered in blood. (laughs) And she was like, do you want her to look like the Joker? (laughs) (laughs) Like, sure. Yeah, I guess I do. That's the feeling. (laughs) I showed Texas Chainsaw one to my non-horror watching brother-in-law over the summer. And I don't think it really clicked right away. (laughs) As the credits (laughs) rolled, he was like, well, okay. And then we didn't really speak of it again. Beforehand, I was like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. The visual language is incredible. The cinematography is like surprisingly modern. It has stuff to say about industrialism and, you know, the hollowing out of middle America. And like, then I feel like just uh, the cannibalism uh, (laughs) washed it all away. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a rich text. And it frustrates me the way that people do not 
see like the inherent satirical nature of those first three Chainsaw movies because like it's satire. Like the second one like leans so hard into like the comedy of it all too. Like it gets so slapstick. There's a fucking chainsaw fight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, it's wonderful. <laughs> They're great movies. And then people complain, like, oh, they made Leatherface not scary. It's like, he's a big dumb dude who's getting bossed around by his family and likes the chainsaw. Like, that's how he always was. That's how he is in the first one. There was just such a huge response to, like, oh, it's so scary. It's so gory. It's so fucked up. Like, everybody just sort of misses the actual themes and characters of the film. If I'm remembering right, I think two has one of my favorite jump scares in all of horror. Is it the bursting through the wall one? In the radio station. Yeah. Yeah, That is so good. (laughs) Toby Hooper, like, is the master of, like, mathematically perfect jump scares. Like, they're all set up so well. The moment in one where, like, Leatherface shows up for the first time and then, like, slams the door after beating the guy... That is like one of my favorite shots in anything. It's so good. And then even watching like one of Toby Hooper's like not good movies, I believe it's called The Toolbox Murders. Not actually about the real life Lawrence Bittiger Toolbox Murders, but it's like a weird LA actor movie that's meant to be like, look at all these goofy LA aspiring actors. And then there's a serial killer or something. It is extremely not a good movie, but there are several just like, technically perfect jump scares in it. Yeah. One of my other favorites, I think, is in The Exorcist 3. Oh, yeah. Classic. The shears. It's like just this long shot of the hospital hallway. Nothing is happening. And then suddenly this a hooded figure carrying a pair of garden shears just like comes out of nowhere. Ugh. That movie is so underrated. It's incredible and is so written by a writer because William Peter Blatty wrote and directed it. And it just like actually has a super interesting script that is well thought out. And then like Brad Dourif going off, like it's fabulous. And it's amazing. Also after Exorcist 2, which is just terrible and incomprehensible and weird. I'm sure it has its defenders, but it seems like that is not most people's favorite film. I remember when that came out in the theaters and got a couple positive reviews, like very positive reviews. People were like, what? The Exorcist 3 is good? It was it was genuinely shocking. Yeah, and I love what you said, Leighton, about it being, like, so writerly. Like, he has some long speech about there being a fish in his bathtub yeah, yeah. that his wife wants to cook, and it lasts, like, four minutes of screen time. It's the sort of stuff that <laughs> no mainstream studio would ever let make it to a theater today. Yeah. But it's so good to just, like, trust those instincts rather than trying to, like edit the movie down into some really, like, contained thing. Yeah. Yeah. And even the original Exorcist is incredibly slow at a lot of points, right? The beginning just takes forever. The novel is, like, the same way, and it just adds more punch to things happening. Like, I hate the scourge of... Not to say that they're all bad, but the Blumhouse style, like, we are going to take this shit script and things are going to jump at you. We are not even going to attempt to build the tension that a good jump scare requires. We are just going to throw a startle response at you and call it a fucking day. And Mm -hmm. it makes me so sad because so many people have their only exposure to horror movies is like The Conjuring or Paranormal Activity. And I like Paranormal Activity a lot, but people just kind of water it all down to the entire genre is just spooky thing jumps at you. And it Mm -hmm. takes like digging into it to find the stuff that isn't just that. But then once you get there, it's this rich well of just like incredible, varied media. 
Yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not into horror, you should really get into horror. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we move to segments? Because this feels like a good time to do that anyway. What do you think, Leighton? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Well, our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. It's called What's Poppin'? The theme song goes here in post. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? And that's the theme song to What's Poppin'. So, Samantha, what's poppin'? I'm here to preach the good word about The Empty Man. It is streaming, I believe, on HBO Max right now. This is a deeply weird film, which is why talking about The Exorcist 3 reminded me of it. The Exorcist 1 with its kind of extended like prologue section. Mm -hmm. The Empty Man is a horror movie directed by David Pryor, who I think before this mostly did like DVD featurettes on like David Fincher movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Zodiac. And then got like this very like long leash, I guess, to go make something deeply weird that got kind of abandoned and neglected by the studios. It was dumped into theaters like in the fall of 2020 when like no one was stepping foot in a theater. Nobody Mm -hmm. saw it. It kind of flopped. The title and the marketing suggested that it was going to be precisely one of those like schlocky teen pitched things like the Bye Bye Man or something, (laughs) you know. God bless the Bye Bye Man. (laughs) The movie rules. I had a lot of fun watching it with friends. It's a perfect just sit and drink and roast movie. And then just the pervasive meme of the pee-pee-poo-poo man. (laughs) Just (laughs) the entire movie is sitting there yelling the pee-pee-poo-poo man. Don't think it, don't say it. (laughs) Sorry, continue. The Empty Man seemed like it was going to be like that. It was like, oh, if you stand on a bridge and you blow in a bottle, you'll see the Empty Man. The first night you see him, the second night he comes for you, the third night you die or something. And it felt like this is going to be dumb. I guess I'll just watch it and laugh at it. And then I saw some folks on Twitter being like, hey, wait, this actually might be good. Uh, and so I watched it too. And like much like The Exorcist 1, it has like a 20 minute long prologue that really builds up to the main narrative of the movie, but exists separately from it. The prologue is set like 25 years before the actual events of the film. And yes, it has the empty man and there's all the mythos about the glass bottle and that kind of stuff. But it's not just like a very superficial thing following like teens around as they get murdered by the empty man. It ends up being kind of like a noirish detective movie that then oh, nice. blows off the existential roof off the whole thing at the end in a pretty like shocking twist. And I just found myself like really enjoying it, maybe precisely because it's the sort of thing that didn't translate well to like a mainstream release these days. I think a lot of stuff that's like truly interesting or challenging or interesting is like not ending up in theaters anymore. It's getting shoved to some weird corner of VOD or streaming. Yeah, you got to hunt for it. I looked it up and I'm seeing some very interesting imagery. That's a fun little creature. It's very, um, I'm going to completely butcher the name of this painter, but Zadislav Bikinski, maybe? Yes, I think that's it's approximately right, yeah. Do y'all know who I'm talking about? Yes. It's like very like post-apocalyptic, like long finger creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy his work, but this looks awesome. And you said it's on HBO? Yeah, I believe so. I feel like people shit all over HBO when HBO Max came out, but it has a lot of great stuff on it. I found 
tons of good stuff on there that has been hard to find. HBO Max, please sponsor us. <laughs> it has like quickly become my favorite streaming service. And one reason why is they play the end credits. Yes. Unlike yes. Netflix, which is like, you watch that movie, why don't you watch another one right now? Yeah, you have to <laughs> scramble. I've scrambled so many times on Netflix to be like, watch credits, and then you mouse over the wrong thing, and suddenly, you know, you've shut it down, or you're playing the next one. Yeah, I really hate that. Why is every streaming service's UI just the absolute worst thing in the world. Hulu is like the worst one for me. Oh, do you remember when they changed it? I feel like five years ago, Vividly. I understood yes. where things were. And then I opened my computer one day and it was like, what if you had to find everything by like typing it into a search bar <laughs> and scrolling through three pages of results? Oh, you want to see all the seasons sequentially? No, we'll show you the first <laughs> season. You got to find <laughs> the rest of them. Yeah, HBO Max has... All the Alan Partridge stuff. Have we talked about this on the show, Layton? I don't think so. Do you know Alan Partridge? Samantha, do you know Alan Partridge? I've seen the movie, one of the most recent movies. Alpha Papa. I think that's it. I know the name, but I don't know him. There was violence in it. I'm trying to remember. I seem to remember a radio station under siege, but I yes. might be mixing it up with Pontypool, which is another <laughs> favorite. <laughs> that's it. So Alan Partridge, he's this character that Steve Coogan has been playing for 30 years now, I think, he's this complete ass of a, like, you know, middle-aged British guy. And he started out as a talk show, like a TV show host, and then moved to radio. And he's done a bunch of TV series. He's done radio stuff. He's done the feature film. It's just this incredible character who's kind of a monster, but in a funny way. A lot of it was hard to find on American TV for a while. And HBO is pretty much all of it. And it's just one of my favorite things. I love Steve Coogan. I love the the trip the trip movies. Yes. So much fun. I watched that Michael Caine impression battle, that one clip of him and Rob Brydon <laughs> over and over and over. It's not nasal enough the way you're doing it. Oh. <laughs> the clip is so good. My name is Michael Caine. I watch it all the time. I probably watch it <laughs> once a week. It's it's one of my favorite things. I didn't see The Trip to Italy. Did you see that one? Is that the most recent? I think it is, yeah. It's either Italy or Greece. Yeah, yeah. Both of those guys are great. Along the lines of the slow burn horror movies of late, did you see Saint Maud? I did. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Very good final image, that one, and a nice like slow burn. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell that they were like, okay, how do we get to this final image? And it's such a like respectable length for such a slow burn. Like you're in, you're out, you get it. It's good stuff. Highly recommend. Bladen, what's popping? My one this week is another full movie that is on YouTube called Punishment Park. Have either of you seen Punishment Park? No. It's a very early, I want to say 1971, found footage like mockumentary about like the prisons are overcrowded. And so Nixon is like, all right, you can choose a jail sentence or you can go to Punishment Park where you hike through the desert for three days and if while pursued by police. And if you can make it to the end, you're exonerated. And it is so fucking good and such a great, like, fuck cops movie in the most explicit way possible. Like, I feel like so few movies are willing to just actually get into the nitty gritty of it because so much of it is like, all these people have been unjustly arrested for being quote unquote radicals. And they're all actual like activists and stuff. Like there was no script. They're all just kind of playing off of each other. Just love a movie to like explicitly 
call out imperialism and like rail against it. Like it's so refreshing to see something that isn't just like a watered down toothless thing. It's just really great and like beautiful desert cinematography and all that. I loved it. Whole thing's on YouTube. It's pretty short. Just it's worth it. When's it from, did you say? 1971, I think. 71, okay, gotcha. And when I was researching Deep Cuts, The Lost History of Found Footage, which if any of you are new to the show, I did a horror history thing that you should listen to because it's fun. But I can't believe that I didn't include this movie in the chronology of found footage because it's not really a horror movie, but like it predates a ton of that shit because it is like early 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Punishment Park. Good stuff. Cool. Brian. Yes. What is popping? What's popping for me this week is it is also a film, but it's a short film. So it's about uh, half an hour long or so. so. There's this director, George T. Nirenberg, who I think late 70s made a documentary about tap dancing called No Maps on My Taps, which (laughs) is generally credited with kind of revitalizing tap dancing. But that's not my what's popping. What's popping is his follow-up to that, which is a very short, like half an hour little documentary from 1985 called On Tap, which is he takes three, you know, oldish, probably mid-50s to 60-year-old tap dancers and just talks to these three guys about their styles, their influences. And then we watch them hang out and dance together in this little studio in New York somewhere. And it is just pure joy start to finish. It starts out with Gregory Hines, like, hanging out behind the Apollo in New York, and you see the alley behind the Apollo, and he's like, this is where I learned to dance. And I was talking to these three guys about their moves and trying to pick up all the different tap dancing moves. And it is just fast. These guys, I mean, they're not young dancers. They're all in their 50s or later. And still, their moves are just incredible. One guy's the slide guy. He does all these slides everywhere. It's just pure joy, start to finish. And when you watch these three you know, old school tap guys just hanging out and kind of improvising together. It's like one of the best things I've ever seen on film. Criterion Channel had it on. And I was just like, oh, this looks fun. You know, I tap dance in school. And I put it on and I just couldn't stop watching it. I thought it was the best. So it's On Tap, the 1985 movie from George T. Nirenberg. That's fun. Yeah. When are you going to bust out your tap shoes, Brian? with your burgeoning career as a tapper. I did do a little soft shoe routine in my Peloton shoes for Audrey the other day. Samantha, that's my daughter. Okay, what are Peloton shoes? (laughs) I swear three different people talked to me this week about (laughs) Peloton shoes. And I was like, do you need special shoes to ride it? Are they digitally activated? Like the Peloton (laughs) won't move? Honestly, I'm surprised they're not digitally activated because it is very much in the spirit of Peloton to brick your shoes if you don't pay them a fee. (laughs) Peloton shoe DRM. (laughs) So the bike comes with these pedals, which basically you have special shoes that clip into the pedals. They look like normal shoes, but in the front, they have kind of a triangular thing that clips into this little holder on the pedals. So they're like cycling shoes. They're cycling shoes where instead of having a strap that goes over the top of your foot, you have a clip on the bottom so you can pull the pedal up with your foot, essentially. And they come with the bike, basically. But the point is, when you walk on these things, you have these giant plastic things in the front of them that make walking just clop, 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 clop. So they're like walking in reverse heels where the cloppy part (laughs) is on the front of the shoe, 
rather than the back. I was literally going to go for reverse Heelys. Yep. The short-lived fat Heelys. The clap, clap, clap. They make a lovely sound when you walk with them. And I did a improvised soft shoe routine, hard shoe routine, for my uh, (laughs) seven-year-old daughter, to which she looked at me and said, not good, and then walked away. (laughs) Tough critic. Oh, you have no idea. I saw someone wearing Heelys in an airport last week, and I didn't think you'd be able to get those through TSA or something. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like for an airport, that's pretty efficient, though. (laughs) Like, I got to get to my gate. Time to scoot. Was it an adult? Because to be an adult in Heelys, that takes a particular level of confidence that I certainly don't have. It was an adult in Heelys in SeaTac, so... Just uh, scooting along through the S terminal. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly didn't even know you could get Heelys in adult sizes, but I guess, sure, why not? You can. They have, like, knockoffs of other shoes because they used to just be, like, aggressively ugly early 2000s, like Mark Echo style. Those are the ones that I had. But now, like, you can get Vans essentially, that are Heelys or like Converse-looking ones. And I say this because I have seriously considered in the past buying adult Heelys, but I feel like my poor (laughs) ankles can't handle it. Wait, you can actually get real Vans-style shoes that are Heelys? Vans makes Heelys? No, Vans doesn't. But the Heelys website, you can get sort of like the knockoffs of other shoes that have the big, fat, chunky heel. Oh, I see. It's an aftermarket conversion, like they do (laughs) Sprinter Vans. There's a company that just takes Vans and... Sprinter Vance. That's really funny. Yeah, there's a whole underground Heelys modding scene. Oh, I bet. I feel like that has to exist. Was it Heelys that would light up as well? Or that was a different shoe, right? That's different. Weren't there shoes that would light up when you walked on them? I mean, yeah, there are a ton of light up children's shoes. I don't understand why Heelys did not immediately get into we're putting LEDs in the wheel because that would be tight as fuck. Yeah, somehow in my mind they're conflated, but I'm pretty sure I made that up. It was a fun time to have Heelys in the early 2000s before every single place was like, no Heelys are allowed in the store. Stop. Imagine if Heelys and vaping came about at the same (laughs) time culturally. (laughs) Convenience stores everywhere would have just been (laughs) decimated. (laughs) You're like a little locomotive just with your cloud of vape as you scoot along the sidewalk. Yeah. And you could keep extra cartridges in the soles, right? And pop them out with the heels. This is so true. I mean, it was such a pain to get the heels out of the shoes and then like put the little cap on. So you would just do the like clomping around with the heel. And then God forbid you put your foot in the wrong direction and then just completely eat shit while slipping on a wheel. (laughs) It's not good. Maybe if vaping and Heelys had come out at the same time, we would be in a much better society now. Like that would have advanced (laughs) us technologically like 20 years Anyway, let's do our final segment, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And it's called Peaches and Lemons. And the theme song is right here. Great. That was the theme song. So let's start with lemons, which is a petty thing that's irritating. So who has lemons? I'll go. Sure. All right, my lemon this week is I have my first work trip in a year and a half. I'm leaving tomorrow. And it just so happens to be to a COVID hotspot, which I am slightly concerned about. I think it's going to be fine. You know, I'm vaccinated and blah, blah, blah. But 
I I'm a little nervous. If I thought I was in danger of putting my family in danger, I wouldn't do it. But still, a little bit concerned. I wish I was not going to a place where COVID is kind of running rampant right now. But I'm excited to travel for work. Hey, this is lemons, not peaches. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. How dare you put a positive spin on that? But yeah, that's it. Samantha, do you have a lemon? Sure. My lemon will be, I recently took my first post-COVID trip and came home to find that a tree branch had fallen on my windshield. Uh, It had not fallen, in fact, but someone had cut tree branches over my parked car, one of which shattered my windshield while I was gone. So I was so happy to be home from vacation, excited to get in my car and go get that crucial first post-vacation grocery run where you restock your fridge and (laughs) discovered (laughs) that my windshield was no more, but it got fixed today. Did anyone like take anything out of your car or anything? No, there was nothing valuable in it. And it wasn't like big enough that you could like go through it. I think if you tried to get into the car through that hole, you would have like really scratched up your tummy and it would not have been pretty. Was the branch still there when you found it? All the tree branches were piled up like against the tree that they had come from, but it was clearly like there's a bunch of sawdust on the floor of the car. Like, of course it had come from this tree. Wait, and then so someone had to take it out of your windshield Oh, yeah. And move it. They definitely took it out and put it in the pile and then just uh, left the car as is. Just oh. no, 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 nothing. Oh, that sucks. Oh, my God. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> That's a bummer. My lemon is that this is such a like dad complaint, but I cannot stop losing my TV remote. My apartment's not that big. There are only so many places it could be. There are only so many cushions that it could be under. And somehow, every single time I sit down, like, I'm going to relax and watch a movie, it turns into a 20-minute search for my remote. So I feel like I need to get, like, a thing to attach it to so it is more visible to my dumbass. If anybody has suggestions on strategies for making remote more findable, let me know. I am the type of person who I walk into a room and I just empty my pockets on whatever surface is available. And that could be wallet, keys, whatever's in there. It just dumped somewhere on the first surface I find. And generally, I'm a pretty organized person. But the thing that changed my life was having a dedicated like, okay, the keys go here. Yeah. By the way, it's not because I necessarily put them there every time, but it's because occasionally... I will find them somewhere else or my wife will find them somewhere else and then put them in the key place. So it's not that I remember to put them there necessarily the first time, but having that dedicated little area really did make a difference for me personally. Everything needs to have a home so Mm -hmm. you know where it is, except for my phone, which I will hurl at high velocity of various things in my apartment and then somehow be pissed that I can't find it. Like, you fool. You did this to yourself repeatedly like 10 times today. Well, here's a suggestion, Layden. Paint your remote to smell like meat and then get maybe <laughs> your dog to find it. Maybe it just like a subtle meat smell so your whole apartment doesn't smell like meat because that would probably be oppressive. I'll dip it in a can of tuna. There you go. That'll do That's it. a great idea. A lovely fragrance. Yes, you can get one of those little clicker trainers for dogs. Click, click. Mm-hmm. So you can train maybe every time you click it to get the clicker. Fetch me my content. Your dog likes tuna fish? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just figured that would be like a, a stinky thing. My uh, dog can't eat like people food at all because she has like pancreas problems. So like oh she'll God. just 
do a sad little vomit. She is a very, very, very small chihuahua, so she just can't do it. She eats her special diet food that she crunches very loudly because it's too big for her mouth. (laughs) She has to take like one piece at a time, (laughs) run away with it, chomp it, and then come back and get more. It's adorable. She's burned all the calories. (laughs) Yeah, already. She is a very slender little creature. Anyway, so that was lemons. And now we will each do peaches, which are three good things, exciting things. They can be big or small, specific or broad. Who cares? So who has a peach? I have a peach. Seeing movies in theaters again, that has been really enjoyable for me. The last two weeks I saw The Green Knight, which was... Oh, how was it? It was great. I mean, visually stunning and Dove Patel's performance is like amazing. Yeah. It's really, really great. And then I saw Old. Nice. Which is a fun movie to see in theaters. And I think I want to do a plug for Old to say, let's stop just making memes about movies and actually go see them sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I also saw Old last week. What a good time. (laughs) Is it good? No. Is it a great time to watch? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Like, Uh, Do I think M. Night Shyamalan is great at dialogue? Not really. That's the correct opinion on that. (laughs) It has fun ideas and visually it's fun and it was a great time. What do you mean the dialogue not being good? In the first two minutes, there are like 10 references to age and old and time. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say for Shyamalan, like I saw Unbreakable in the theaters and I was totally captivated by that film the entire time. I just loved it. And also, I talked to a lot of people who saw it who just hated it. Yeah, I thought Sixth Sense was fun, but unbreakable to me seeing it in the theater. I was just like, I am on board for what this guy is serving here. Sometimes he does things that really, really work. Yeah, I kind of like when he gets to be weird. Yes. And sometimes they're huge misses. Like I've tried to rewatch The Happening recently (laughs) and (laughs) did not make it very far. But then occasionally it's like, wow, holy shit. Like this is the reason you are, you know, still a box office draw after all this time is you can really put a frame together still. Yeah. The moment in The Happening where Mark Wahlberg is like, what? No, I think about all the time. Like, it's just the most, like, half-assed line delivery I've ever heard. Especially in response to an old woman being like, you're trying to kill us. What? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think both old and the happening had plots in which the female main character had been unfaithful, if I'm remembering right. Mm. Hasn't Zoe Deschanel cheated on Mark Wahlberg in The Happening? And then in Old, some of the marital strife is because the the French lady has cheated on the husband. You know, I guess he does have a lot of marital strife because of the sixth sense. That's a Mm -hmm. plot point, of course. I didn't think about this. There's a lot of marriage stuff going on in M. Night Shyamalan movies. Yeah, I guess getting pinned to a tree by a car isn't necessarily marital strife. It's just strife. Are you talking about signs? Yeah, of course. I'm always talking about signs. <laughs> no, I understand this, of course. <laughs> it's a formative film for me. How do we feel about signs and um, A Quiet Place Part 2 both using water to solve narrative problems? <laughs> <laughs> Great when signs... I guess it's been 15 years since signs, maybe? Not 20 yet. No way, right? Yeah, I'm okay with them reusing that particular plot device as 
corny as it is. I hated Quiet Place so much, and I have so much loathing for like John Krasinski that I'm just not even going to touch Quiet Place 2. I saw Quiet Place in theaters, and I just could not handle it. Apparently, uh, Cillian, Killian Murphy, uh, Scarecrow mm-hmm. guy, is in Quiet Place Part 2. I had no idea when I sat down to watch it. God damn it, now I have to watch it. Again, Signs. Saw it in the theater. There's some religious stuff in it that maybe I wasn't super on board for the God has a plan stuff sort of bothers me. But I thought watching that in a crowded theater with a bunch of people who shrieked when that alien first shows up on that old tape or that news broadcast or whatever it was, it was a great moment. That movie worked in the theater. The one he lost me on was The Village, where I think I audibly groaned during that movie several times. That's when I kind of stopped watching Shyamalan movies for a little bit. Also, The Village is like a direct, like plagiarizing a young adult novel called Running Out of Time by Margaret Peterson Haddix. Oh, really? It's just like exact same premise, exact same plot. Because I read the book before the movie came out, I think, and then watched the movie and was like, this is like one-to-one running out of time, except this movie is shitty. But yeah, sorry, Samantha, please continue with your peaches. Second peach to my hairless cat, Nala, who I missed very much while I was away and Mm -hmm. who has blessed me with much cuddling since my return. (laughs) Nice. She could tell I was upset about my windshield and uh, (laughs) laid on me for a while and purge, and it made me forget about the windshield momentarily. And hairless cats in general, really liking it. (laughs) Yeah, how old is uh, your kitty? She's a year old, and it is my first hairless cat experience, and there are very unique breed. They're very affectionate. They get cold because they don't have fur. And so they Mm -hmm. seek you out more often for cuddles or they'll want to sleep under the sheets, kind of like burrowed between your shins, which I find really endearing. And they're like angels in the morning. And then midday, they just like tear around the apartment. And then (laughs) at night, they become sweet again. It's a real Jekyll Hyde situation with her. Wow. I don't think I've ever met anyone who has a hairless cat. What's like the texture of a hairless cat's skin? Oh, like crushed velvet. People think that they're going to feel like raw chickens. Like I've watched people be afraid (laughs) to like pet her because they're not sure. This is weird to me because I guess at one time I thought this until I got one, but people think that they look freaky or that they look uh, unsettling, but they're so adorable and they feel like amazing. Wow. I hope I get to pet one someday. What a sweetie. And I'll give another peach to HBO Max. (laughs) (laughs) Really enjoying it, especially White Lotus I've been watching. Oh, is that, I've been meaning to. It's a really smart kind of satire of the leisure class that I've really been enjoying. I was interested in it because of Jennifer Coolidge. Did you two read that like profile of her that came out two weeks ago? No, but she's incredible in it. No, but I love her. She's the best. I highly recommend that article that I can't remember what website it was on, but like she is so fucking cool. It's unbelievable. What an icon. There was a tweet from several months ago, or maybe it was an article, I can't remember, It was someone saying this gif of Jennifer Coolidge saying, hi, saved my life. (laughs) Have you seen that? And it's just this this little short little, you know, like TikTok length movie of her. And they just sort of pan up her and she looks at the camera and goes, hi. 
<laughs> I can't do her delivery, but it's just so funny and so her. You know, she has this very idiosyncratic delivery for everything she does, which is what makes her incredible. It's really, really great. It stayed with me for a while. God bless her. I hope she's having a great day today. Yeah. Layton, you got any peaches? Oh. Oh, haven't looked at Twitter in a week, which fucking oh, nice. whips. It's great awesome. Job. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what any of the news is. I don't know what the discourse is. I don't give a shit. Doesn't matter. Just reading a lot of books. My second peach is I've been painting a lot of things that I don't normally paint just because I normally do like people and girls and boobs and whatnot. And I've just been painting like weird technology and like crashed cars and stuff. And I haven't been posting any of it, which has also been awesome been logged off and it rules. And then my third peach is that just been having a difficult time personally lately, but I feel very, very supported by my friends right now. And everyone has been like so effusively. And Brian, you are among those. Oh. Just been very effusively supportive and kind and wonderful. And it has been greatly uh, appreciated in this extended dark night of the soul. So those are my three peaches. When do we get to see the crashed car paintings? Oh, they'll come up at some point. I spent like hours on this like single like door of a car that was smashed up. Like painting metal is really fun. I've been doing a series of little guys that are like old early 2000s, like chunky technology that's like split apart and melting. So I'm just into melting plastic and weird metal right now, which is soothing. Part of me is offended that you called early 2000s technology old, but I'm going to just Brian, it. it's 2021. I know. It's like 20 years. I know. I, look, I get it. I get it. You're not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're just mad because you're old. <laughs> I, I was watching a Sex in the City last night where uh, Carrie gets like one of those clamshell MacBooks that are like translucent oh. with the colored oh, yeah. stripe and the like little handle. Ah, yep. oh, what I would give to go back to those days. And they had like the little circular mouses that were like a perfect circle. Oh, that's... Just put colors on things again. I would love to see like any color on anything instead of slab. You know, they kind of brought those back. They have IMAX now back with fun colors. They just announced it's it. not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. You're definitely right. They have to make it look sophisticated and sleek and... Yeah, I feel like screens got flat and things got less cool. A hundred percent. You look at phones from like the late 90s, early 2000s, and it's just, this is the pinnacle of design. Slidey keyboard, thank God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Brian, what are your peaches? All right, first peach is that one of my favorite musicians of all time is Elton John. Huge influence on me in every possible way as a pianist, as a songwriter. And I just got tickets to see his final concert tour. He said he's doing a, a, a world tour last year, last tour ever. I know people say that all the time, but it is definitely plausible at his age. And I got tickets to see him at Dodger Stadium, where, of course, there was a very famous Elton John concert where he's in the sparkly baseball uniform, if you've seen Rocket Man, that's in that. And I'm just excited to see Elton John at Dodger Stadium because he is... One of my heroes. Have you seen him live before? I've never seen Elton John live before, no. Very exciting. I dare you to just call out for his hit song from the Nomeo and Juliet soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> just be begging him to play that. <laughs> Only the hits. 
Do no meow. Just don't let it drop till you get thrown out. Yes. <laughs> now that's a challenge. I like that. Another kind of music one. My second peach is I was in an article recently in GQ on, it was an oral history of Don't Fear the Reaper. Now I could give two shits about GQ. I don't even really know what it is, but they had this oral history of Don't Fear the Reaper, which my band covered. And they got some quotes from me and my partner, Dan. And it was like us and Chris Catan, Chris Parnell. Of course, they had to talk to SNL people, Chris Collingwood, a bunch of other musicians that don't fear the Reaper people. It was just cool to be a part of a big publication's oral history on this song from my weird ninja band. Wow. Keyboardist, ninja sex party. Before I started doing music full time, I was a theoretical physicist to me. The message of the song is we have what we live in, nothing else. It's fair to call that deep. Look at you. Yep. Look at you. Yep. And my final peach is I have a deadline on a project. I was writing some music for something. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to take like hours and hours and hours. And then I sat down. I did something like a half an hour. And I was like, wait, is this it? Did I do it? And I sent it to the relevant parties. And everyone's like, yes, that's great. Done. And I got an entire night with my daughter that I thought I was going to have to spend working. But instead, I got to watch her yell at me for playing Zelda games wrong, which is much better. So yeah, that was a good feeling because I'm going out of town this week and then I'm going out of town on a little writing retreat next week. So I have some, you know, not much family time in the next three weeks or so. So having one evening back with my daughter was great. And those are my peaches. Cool deal. It's amazing. I didn't know how incorrectly I did things until I had a child. And now I just found out that Everything I do is wrong. I play video games wrong. I dance wrong. I sing wrong. I parent wrong. It's really stunning how wrong I am about everything. And she's only seven. She's the expert. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get better at doing things in the next, oh, 10 years or so. You need to visit the old beach together, I think. <laughs> yeah, get her into her mid-20s like now. <laughs> I'm trying to not do a spoiler for old, but when two of the children return again as two actors who I really greatly enjoy, I was just like so fucking excited because I had no <laughs> idea they were in it. <laughs> just emerging from the beach, uh, bearing horrible news. <laughs> it was great. Samantha, thank you so much for being here. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Any conversation in which we get to talk about The Exorcist 3 is a good one for me. <laughs> yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. If people would like to read your work or find you online, where can they do so? Sure. I'm on Twitter at SLA Writes or SLA Writes, like uh, someone doing <laughs> witchy things with coleslaw. So. <laughs> Find me there, and I post writing there. That's awesome. Layton and I both really, really did love Real Queer America. It's a wonderful and touching and very well-written thing that I cannot recommend more highly to anyone, but of course, the people listening to this will be our audience. So our audience specifically, I think, will enjoy it, and I really encourage everyone to get it and check it out. It's wonderful. Oh, thanks. And be on the lookout for Patricia Wants to Cuddle next yes. year. That's, I didn't fuck up the name, did I? No, I'm surprised I got the name through the publisher. I sort of thought <laughs> this will change at some point and it never did. So I'm thrilled about that. Wonderful. All right. Well, everybody at home, 
Thank you for joining us here on this just all around good vibes episode. I hope everyone at home is uh, vibing, thriving, and surviving. And that's the end of the podcast. Bye bye. Bye, everybody. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at leightonnight at gmail.com. <laughs>